Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Guys, we had so much fun the other night with our uh, Zoom call, the Order of Freaks, our Patreon supporters. We, uh, we had special guests this time. Surprise visit from the curator and... Nan McNamara. I feel like Nan needs a fancy name since the curator has such a fancy name. That's true. We'll figure something out. Lindsay Schnabley, the voice of the curator and co-host for The Shallow End, joined us. And his wife, Nan McNamara, award-winning actress, who is also the voice of The Shallow End. They popped in and it was a lot of fun. Oh my gosh. We talked about everything from Rob Lowe and how tasty he is Mm -hmm. to backsplash and dinner uh, so much man just uh, did a guest starring role on rob lowe's new uh, tv series or his current tv project 911 lone star and yeah she confirmed that uh, in person he's as yummy or actually yummier than in than on tv so these are the reasons why you should uh, become a member of the order of freaks exactly uh surprise guests and conversations that maybe you wouldn't expect. You can become a member by going to theboxofoddities.com. All the links are there. We so appreciate you guys. Mm-hmm. And I hope you appreciate this story. Now, I love stories about eccentric people. Yes. Or just people who had different and unusual habits or hobbies, especially when it comes to historical figures. Of course, many of the things that uh, were done back in the day that we think of as eccentric uh, in their historical context, maybe not quite as eccentric, but it's right. still fun to, to check these things out. I think sometimes we think of historical figures, especially if they had a big influence on uh, society, we think of them in the way that history portrays them, oftentimes through rose-colored glasses. So <laughs> when you discover something that perhaps was a little bit odd about them, maybe a, an odd habit or kinks or maybe just some eccentricities, It makes that juxtaposition all the more delicious. Kind of like when we talked about Ben Franklin and his air baths. That's a perfect example. And how, you know, he's such a 
historic figure. But the fact that he decided that bathing in the air was a thing, yeah. I just think is delightful. And and totally nude. He would uh, sit on the upstairs window of his uh, his house uh, overlooking the town square, totally nude. Yeah, because that's how he got clean. An air bath. And of course, you can find examples like this throughout any historical period. But today, I'm going to take a look at the Regency era and some of the weird shit that happened then. Now, okay. <laughs> according to Wikipedia, the Regency era of British history spans the years of uh, 1811 through 1820, at least officially, it's commonly applied to a longer period between 1795 and 1837. King George III succumbed to his mental illness in late 1810, and by their Regency Act of 1811, the eldest son, George, Prince of Wales, was appointed Prince Regent to discharge the royal functions. Okay. He wasn't really a king. When George III died in 1820, the Prince Regent did succeed him as George V. In terms of uh, periodization, the, the longer time span is roughly the final third of the Georgian era, which would have been 1714 through 1837. And it made up at least 25 years of George III's reign. It ended when Queen Victoria ascended to the throne in May of 1837. That began the Victorian era, which uh, spanned 1837 through 1901. You got that? Sure. For those of you who watch Bridgerton on Netflix... I, I aim to, I just haven't yet. You have a pretty good idea of the Regency period. It was a time of incredible fashion, opulence, and intense social norms. Let's start with some of the historical names like Beethoven, as in Ludwig von, if you will. Mm -hmm. German composer and pianist. To this day, he is regarded as one of the most admired composer in the history of Western music. We've heard the stories about how Beethoven was deaf and how he could still compose music even after he was deaf by biting the edge of the piano so he could feel the vibrations of the notes. That's amazing. Masterpieces like this, uh, his Ninth Symphony, an Ode to Joy, some incredible pieces of music. So he was obsessed with composing beautiful symphonies, but he was also obsessed with coffee. I mean... I get it. And it had to be brewed to his exacting standards. Now, in his mind, the perfect cup of coffee had to be made a specific way. And so every day, to brew that perfect cup of coffee to start his day, he counted out exactly 60 coffee beans. He would hand, hand count these beans. And then when he was done, he would recount them again just to make sure that they were exactly 60 beans not 59 not 61 okay if somebody else brewed his coffee for him and they used fewer than 60 coffee beans or more it was said he could tell the difference just by tasting it well i suppose if you are that exacting all the time it would be pretty easy to to taste the difference the Prince Regent George IV himself was a unique person for the time. Now, in those days, of course, people were smaller. They were shorter. Um, they also were, for the most part, pretty thin because, well, you know, poverty. He was known mostly as a young man for his overindulgent eating patterns. 
his extremely wide waistline and a long list of ailments that he um, that accompanied that condition. Okay. Prince Regent George IV believed in starting his day with a hearty breakfast, and he had the same thing every day for years. His hearty breakfast consisted of two pigeons, <gasps> three steaks, three parts of a bottle of white wine, a glass of dry champagne, two glasses of port, and a glass of brandy to just kind of wash it all down. That's a lot of liquid for one meal. It's a lot of alcohol for one meal, especially breakfast. That's what, I mean, sure. But just a lot of liquid. I yep. mean, that's still, that's, I mean, how many glasses is three quarters a bottle of wine? Maybe two or three? I would say three good three. sized ones. Yeah. Okay. So that's three. And then you said two glasses of port? Yeah. And a glass of champagne and then a uh, glass of brandy. So that's six drinks at yep. breakfast. Uh-huh. At least. Accounts at the time say that it took his valet three hours every day after breakfast to squeeze the prince regent into his girdle and whalebone corset. Why? I mean, if you're that well off and, you know, you're... And your waistline is an indicator to your wealth. Yeah, right. I mean, what's the point? Plus, you're not fooling anyone. Right. That's right. Because of his poor eating habits, he developed gout and eventually became blind. Uh, he died at the How age of... How do you go blind from eating poorly? Maybe he became diabetic or something. Okay. I'm not, I'm not really sure. I didn't know that that's how that worked. He died at the age of 67 in 1830. At the time of his death, it was said he weighed well over 300 pounds. And at his funeral, they had to align the palace hallway walls with wood panels. So when the pallbearers carried him out in the coffin, in his giant coffin, if they succumbed to the weight and crashed against the walls, it would uh, preserve the valuable architecture. Okay, but I feel like... 300's not that much. <laughs> like, yeah, but I mean, people that's were not, little then. Well, not that little. It wasn't like they were... Let's let's take a look and see, because you may be right. It's not like they were Homo Florentius. No, no, tiny little hobbits. According to the interwebbles, uh, the average height around this time in Europe was 5 foot 3. So, uh, I smaller. Mean, yeah. It's only like an inch and a half shorter than I am. <laughs> How many Katrina walls would it take to carry the Prince Regent to his final resting place? Oh, Let's do the math. Yeah, but how many of them would it take to carry me? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> this the story reminded me of uh, we, I did this a long time ago. Kind of touched on it. King Edward the Seventh. Uh, now this was much later, of course, during the Edwardian era. But he was the guy that invented sex furniture. Remember that? I do remember that the sex chair. Uh, it was also called a sex sled. Uh, it was custom made to his specific measurements and could co accommodate up to three participants. It was said he carried out about 55 affairs during his marriage. The locals called him Edward the Caresser <laughs> and also Dirty Birdie. Edward the Caresser is one of the nicer nicknames I've ever heard. It sounds very regal. And gentle. You don't often think about drug abuse when it comes to, you know, the early 1800s, but both the upper and lower classes did indulge, especially in opium. Sure. Opium was really popular during the uh, Regency era. Well, yeah. It was marketed as a relaxant. 
<laughs> and, you betcha. And also to enhance creativity. And it was often marketed to the elite. And when it was marketed to the elite, it was presented, they presented it as gold-coated pills. They would often mix it in powder form with various expensive herbs and then coat it in like gilded oh, wow. gold foil. It's not enough to get high. You've got to be opulently high. I mean, one of the benefits would be once you came down, at least, you know, your shit would glitter. That's nice. Now, this was also a period of great modesty. When the hot summer days rolled around, as I'm sure you could imagine, a popular way to occupy those hot summer days would be to spend it seaside. Go to the beach. Of course. Like today. Customs of the time, though, were very different. They allowed men to swim in just their underpants if they wanted to. Wow. And they were also permitted to dive off of boats, which was really kind of uh, racy at the time. Oh. Yeah. Uh, why? I, I don't know, because they were maybe showing off their athletic prowess in their underpants. Oh, kind of like when women would take a stroll around the drawing room to show off their form. Their bustle. Yes. <laughs> Women, on the other hand, had what was called a bathing costume. They were not allowed to show themselves to the opposite sex, even when they were nearly completely covered in their bathing costume at the beach. Not only were the beaches separated into a women's section and a men's section, and that women were required to wear neck-to-ankle bathing costumes, that still wasn't enough women would employ what was known as bathing machines. They weren't really machines, but that's what they called them. It worked like this. It was a large wooden box. The only window on it was in the roof, on the roof, the top of the box. It was on wheels like a cart, no flooring, and it was pulled by horses like a carriage. If a woman wanted to go swimming at a beach, bathe in the ocean, she would get into this bathing machine and change into her bathing costume inside the box. That would keep people from seeing her as she changed. And they could also hang up their clothing on the inside to keep them dry. But once they had completely changed, then the bathing machine would take them to the edge of the water, lead them in, and allow them to swim around without being seen by anybody. <laughs> It's like a giant outhouse on wheels is what it looks like. Why uh, why worry about the bathing costume if you're in a box? That's a great question. Thank you. I'm chock full of them. Also, one wonders that if many of these bathing machine experiences, including dodging horse turds, because <laughs> <laughs> the horses are pulling you out there and you've got to swim, ah, I would, wouldn't want to be down current. Some of the foods of the Regency era were often strange by modern-day standards. Ice cream, for example, was incredibly popular in the Regency era. Well, yeah. And they had flavors like you would expect, like lemon. They had hazelnut. They had rum. They had burnt sugar. They even had lavender and elderflower, which sounds pretty good. But then they had one strange one. The most popular flavor of ice cream during this particular time period, was Parmesan cheese. Parmesan cheese-flavored ice cream. No one knows why that was the most popular flavor, but it was. Remember that ice cream parlor we used to go to in Bar Harbor, Maine? They had the, uh, their famous flavor was lobster. They had lobster-flavored ice cream. I don't like any of this. <laughs> And finally, one of the greatest status symbols in Regency England wasn't high-end fashion. 
It wasn't jewels or gilded palaces. It was pineapples. Right. Yes, we have talked about this. Europeans had no idea that pineapples existed until they were discovered in South America by colonists. Growers began to plant pineapple trees in many of the British colonies that would support their growth. And these plantations, of course, were extremely far away from England, and only the wealthiest and most well-connected people were able to import them. They paid ridiculous amounts of money to be able to have a pineapple. Foodbeast.com said the pineapple was introduced to England in the 17th century. By the late 18th century, if you were seen with a pineapple, it was an instant indicator of your immense wealth and power. Didn't they, like, rent them out? They did rent them out. And to put this in perspective, a single pineapple in that day would cost the equivalent of $8,000 today. (laughs) Oh, my God. Now, here's the thing. Because the pineapples were grown in faraway plantations and it took an incredibly long amount of time to import them to England and there was no refrigeration, most of the time when the pineapples arrived, they would be rotten. But that didn't deter the Regency elite. They would proudly display on their table a rotten pineapple that they'd paid the equivalent of $8,000 for (laughs) because they could. Look at this fermented fruit. I'm so fancy. I wonder how much they could get, though, if they rented it out and it was rotten. If people actually paid rent for a rotten uh, rotten pineapple. They must have. My information came from the Vintage News, Wikipedia, and Foodbeast.com. Wow. What a strange time to be alive. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house, yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, 
and they live about 3,000 miles away. And my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. And now, that thing in the middle. It was the late 1800s. The funeral industry was concerned. Apparently, the term undertaker wasn't very customer friendly. So a task was set to choose a new name. The term mortician was invented and chosen after a call for ideas in Embalmers Monthly. Jamie sent us a message on Patreon after our Zoom meeting last night. Apparently, my husband was in love with Anya, who Nan played the voice of in the Gears of War. Nan McNamara, who joined us on yeah. our Zoom meeting last night. Now he's jealous that I was on a Zoom call with her. <laughs> That's a game, yeah? Yeah, I think it's a game. She does a lot of uh, voice work for games, as does Lindsay, her husband. Well, see, that's why you should join us for a Zoom calls. <laughs> I'm just saying. It's really fun. One of the things I enjoy the most about those is talking with people from Scotland. We've had people from... Uh, Wisconsin? <laughs> yeah, the faraway land of Wisconsin. Australia, New Zealand. Uh, it's, it's really cool. People from all over the world who share their love for the strange, bizarre, and unexpected. I just love where the conversations can go that you don't expect them to get to, and that's that's one of the fun things for me. One of the freaks from Alabama was talking about how his house is on a Civil War cemetery. Remember that I story? Mean... And and he, he was out mowing the lawn one time where there were some old Civil War graves, and his little boy kept saying, Daddy, who's that man standing over there? And there was no man! We got a message from William. Hi, guys. I've been to some chicken poop bingo games here in Mississippi. <laughs> I guess we talked about that once on an earlier episode. Okay. Uh, what's hilarious about them is... Everyone who has a bet down is usually yelling, shit on me, shit on me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's a hoot. Love y'all. Oh my gosh, William. Oh, that was wonderful. That was a much needed endorphin rush. Thanks. It was. Appreciate that. I feel much more awake. <laughs> Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. 
I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, today's highlight in history. On this date, somewhere in the world, some woman or man said something and some shit went down. Man, we loves us some history. This is The Box of Oddities. First and foremost, big thanks to Aaron for suggesting this topic. Several people have suggested this topic, but Aaron did it most recently, and uh, that's the one I so remember. Her name is at the top of the queue. In my brain. Right. In the mid-20th century, Russia had a host of science cities. These were towns with high concentrations of research and development facilities uh, in Russia and the Soviet Union. And in many cases, these were cities that were built for this purpose. Of course, uh, there was a lot going on in the world at that time, and Russia was hoping to snag superpower status by way of science. Many of these cities were closed cities, so access to them was highly restricted. And that includes the town of Protvino. Protvino is located in Moscow Oblast, located about 100 kilometers south of Moscow. In 1978... In 1978, Anatoly Borgorsky was working at the Institute for High Energy Physics in Protvino. The institute is known for the particle accelerator U-70 synchrotron launched in 1967. Particle accelerator uses electromagnetic fields to propel charged particles to very high speeds and very high energies to contain them in well-defined beams. Besides being very cool and contributing to daydreams of black holes and time and space travel, particle accelerators help us develop practical technologies with things like medicine. Uh, proton and ion beam therapies are very effective at treating certain types of cancer. 
and uh, in addition to things like travel safety with CT scanners. So this particular particle accelerator, the U-70 synchrotron, was at the time the highest energy proton generator in the world, kicking that shit around at nearly the speed of light. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So anyway, it's July 13, 1978, and Anatoly is doing his maintenancing, as he does, when he noticed a malfunctioning module from the synchrotron. One of the lights indicating that the machine was running had gone out. So he went to the particle accelerator room. Unfortunately, a previous experiment had the lights of the accelerator switched off, and who was ever in charge had forgotten to turn them back on. So Anatoly went to inspect the machine. Now, of course, there is a safety feature that has a light that shows you when the machine is on and when it's off. Right. Um, Unfortunately, that was part of what was not working that day. Oh, my God. So Anatoly put his head in the channel to get a better look at the malfunction. Oh, no. In the blink of an eye. Was he transported back to the past? (laughs) Back to the future. We actually uh, found out the other day uh, on a documentary about the making of that movie that they ha- originally hated that title, that the production company said it didn't make any sense, uh, which I can't imagine the movie Back to the Future being called anything else. I know. It's also weird to think about Eric Stoltz in Michael J. Fox's role. Right. That just mm. And part of some of his footage that, that they shot, they used, like from the back Mm-hmm. I think the diner scene, that's actually Eric Stoltz. Oh, really? I didn't yeah. know that part. Anyway, that was a weird tangent. But fun. So anyway, Anatoly is in the accelerator room, putting his head in the channel, <laughs> and in the blink of an eye, actually much faster than that now that I think of it, um, <laughs> his head was in the path of a 67 GeV proton beam. Uh, GeV is the amount of kinetic energy gained by a single electron accelerating from the rest through an electronic potential difference of one volt in a vacuum. Ooh, so fast. So fast. Anatoly saw a flash brighter than a thousand suns, but reportedly felt no pain. Hmm. Then everything went a little dark for a minute. He took a beat and then went back to work. Noting the machine safety lights needed to be turned back on, uh, he just not jotted down what Ooh. he did to the machine and went on with his day. He initially opted not to tell anyone what had happened. Uh, apparently, 500 to 600 rads is enough to kill a person. And Anatoly had been given a facial by 200,000 rads. <laughs> A facial. So he's going about his day, probably a little freaked out, maybe a little confused about what had happened, but keeping it to himself. So he went home at the end of his shift and went to bed. He had a very restless night, as you can imagine. And when he woke up the next day, his face had swollen beyond recognition and he had lost hearing in his left ear. Oh my God. So he figured it was doctor time. (laughs) Uh, Because in addition to the concern about the beam attack itself, there's radiation to consider. Radiation is created when charged particles move through magnetic fields. The average accumulated background radiation dose to an individual over the course of a year in the United States is a millisievert. Okay. And according to peaked interest in this case, this system produced 1.8 million millisieverts. 
Wow. 5,000 usually means death. Wow. Or as Owen Wilson would say, wow. (laughs) From the analysis made by the doctor, the beam had entered through the back of Anatoly's head, and it had burned not a hole, but a path of murdered cells through the occipital and temporal lobes of his brain, the left middle ear, and out through the left-hand side of his nose. Good God in heaven. Over the next several days, the skin started to peel, revealing the path that the proton beam had taken. Of course, like I said, it wasn't a hole, but it was a path of deadened cells now. Mm. Everything Mm. that that proton beam touched is now dead. So necropsy, am I using that right? It starts to die. Everything's starting to like peel back and shed. Anatoly was sent to a special clinic that treated victims of radiation poisoning. Experts assumed that at least 250,000 ionizing radiation radiation and prepared Anatoly for the worst. He was exposed to the most extreme dose of radiation in human history. Now, radiation poisoning, you know, there's a lot of things where if something else isn't going to get you, the radiation will. Well, sure. And radiation poisoning is rough. It starts with loss of appetite, but it comes with fatigue, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, seizures, cardiac arrest, coma. Everything's super uncomfortable in the meantime. Your organs just start to die. It's not a good time. Weeks passed, though, and Anatoly was not getting worse. He seemed to be getting better. Now, he was very easily fatigued when exerting himself mentally, and he was having occasional seizures because, yeah, a radiated proton beam had burned a hole through his brain. Sure. Yeah. But Anatoly returned to work 18 months later. That's some employee loyalty right there. Well, it's also that, and he, he man's got to work. You know? Sure. He did appear regularly at the clinic uh, at least twice a year where he was treated by the same doctors that were treating other people with radiation poisoning. But in the meantime, he completed his PhD in physics and held some experiments at the U-70 proton synchrotron where the accident happened. Those experiments didn't include him sticking his head in the uh, chamber again. Never again. Like some kind of proton acceler radiation party trick. No more putting your head in the path of the, the proton beam. Now, doctors assessed that... It was because of the speed of the beam that the radiation didn't get a chance to stick. Hmm. If Anatoly had been doing maintenance on a low-intensity beam, he would likely have succumbed to radiation poisoning because the radiation would have had a chance to attenuate. And because of the high speed and high energy that that proton beam plowed through his head... The radiation just didn't stand a chance. It was just going along for the ride. It was on that train, and it continued on with the train. It did not get off at any stops inside Anatoly. That makes me very happy to hear. Now, because of the Soviet Union's policy on maintaining secrecy on (laughs) nuclear power and various other scientific experiments at the time, 
Anatoly's story was buried for a long time, and he was not able to get the health care that he should have received for free as a citizen of Russia because, on paper, this accident didn't happen. I see. The medical records were classified so that he was noted to have just been in an accident, which, gosh, can mean a lot of things, not a proton jamming through your brain. Because virtually everything connected with nuclear energy was kept secret in the Soviet Union, especially anything that had gone wrong, it was only after the Chernobyl disaster that Anatoly's story came to light. You mean Chernobyl? Oh, I don't. I've heard it both ways. Mm -hmm. So as time moved on, Russia's science towns started to shut down over the country as funding dried up. Now, overall... Anatoly's in pretty good health, considering he took a proton beam through the brain doing secret research for his country, but he struggles to pay for his epilepsy medication, since the city cut budget to the institute and his former workplace. Ah. So, I guess fuck you, Anatoly. Thanks for your hard work <laughs> mm-hmm. and your contributions yep. to science. Keep your mouth shut and no medicine for you. In 1996, he applied for disability, but his application was rejected. Even though, and I hesitate to repeat this, but he was jabbed through the brain by a radiated proton beam. You'd think they'd make some allowance for that. You'd think. Anatoly says this is, meaning himself and his health, in effect, an unintended test of proton warfare. More to the point, he believes, I am being tested. The human capacity for survival is being tested. And he would love to make himself available to Western researchers so that they can study how Mm. this incident is affecting his long-term health. And and maybe give him some medicine. Unfortunately, Anatoly does not have the money to leave the science town of Protvino. Oh, man, that's rough. It's some high-end fuckery, if you ask me. Yeah, it really is. Um, It's really an interesting story, but it ends up just pissing me off. (laughs) I got most of my information from Physics World, Wired, History of Yesterday, Peaked interest and amusing planet. So this is weird. Before we end this episode, let's let's mention that email that we got. The, the angry one. Yeah, we got an angry email. <laughs> no, right. In the last episode, Kat did a uh, topic on uh, the Statue of Liberty and some of the stranger, lesser known facts involving. And you had made reference to the plaque that is on the Statue of Liberty, and you said you weren't going to read it because it was too long. And then we included it as an Easter egg. Right, at the end of the episode. At the end of the episode. And that really pissed somebody off. Yeah, someone uh, (laughs) wrote us, just listen to your lame attempt at pushing your agenda, reading that poem in your last episode. Um, Apparently, as a patriotic American, uh, they are done with our bullshit. So uh, stick to entertainment, they said. Uh, And then I I don't even want to include the last sentence. All right. So this is where we are right now in this country. People get offended by anything. It is so weird. You read the poem at the bottom of the Statue of Liberty, and somebody is questioning our patriotism because of that. (laughs) Wow. I don't get it. I don't don't understand. Um, Okay. You know, uh, thanks for sharing your feelings, though. It's important that we all share, uh, I guess. (laughs) I don't know what else to say. Well, it's good to know that the Statue of Liberty is 
not patriotic. Right. It's so divisive. <laughs> okay. Anyway. anyway. <clears throat> we love you guys. We'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. The Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash Box of Oddities Podcast. On Twitter at Box of Oddities and Instagram at Box of Oddities Podcast. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. Hello, everyone. It's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.